0: All right, what is up, everybody? Thanks for tuning in to the John Q Public podcast show, episode number five, and this is this is a big one. And I, I didn't intend to like to do this particular segment so soon, but I was on the phone last night, and this topic came up, and I just. I had to get going on it like I had it on my sheet like it was kind of down the list a little bit of, of things that I wanted to dive into but I think that given like where where everything is right now um, you know there might be a lot of merit to this so this is gonna be like a little mini series I don't know how many parts we're gonna to do to it but it's gonna be about the Federal Reserve Bank and some economics and different things. And again, this is from the common man's perspective. I am not a finance expert. I'm not a banking expert or anything like that. I'm a guy that likes to read. I'm a guy that loves a good conspiracy theory, uh, in part because so many of them have come true over time. And I think this is a polarizing topic that is not talked about enough. And so I think for, for our time here in this first part, let's look at maybe a little bit of a history to this, um, a a foundation, if you will, kind of how everything came to be, what were the, you know, the, the mechanisms behind it and all that stuff and, you know, really look at you know, it's a joke, in my opinion. It's you know, it's fake money. That's why it's called fiat currency. It's not a real tangible thing. It's not gold, it's not silver, it's not anything that has value, right? If if the economy collapsed and we went into you know, ages, as it were, there's only a few things that have value. You know, gold and silver, precious metals have value, goods and services have value for like bartering and trading and, and that kind of stuff. Right. But the Federal Reserve System, which was created by the wealthiest of the wealthy, the most powerful handful of people back, and it all started in 1910-ish. It's kind of when this all got going. The, you know, the Federal Reserve Act was passed in 1913. Right. And as we dive into this, what you will find is that the, the Federal Reserve System is very much functions like a cartel and it operates against public interest. It is a way to generate the most unfair tax possible. it encourages war, destabilizes you know all of our economic mechanisms, right so uh, a free market society and capitalism and and everything and it is an instrument of totalitarianism of new world order et cetera right because you put your citizens in a position where the only thing that has a value for goods and services while while this Federal Reserve system is in place is the fiat currency that the Federal Reserve system generates. Right? Uh, limitless money, global power, and it's in plain sight, which is, you know, kind of scary in a way for those of us that are normal. It is designed to, you know, to kind of centralize control of, of everything in society, right? So, you know, the primary question being, what is the Federal Reserve System, right? Number one, it's not federal, okay? It has nothing to do with the federal government in that regard, and there's not actually reserves to it, right? You can't, the, the Federal Reserve Bank isn't, is quite literally not a, not a bank in the traditional sense, right? So if you think about it, for, you know, years and years and years, right? In the United States, we had a lot of local banks, which we'll get into in a minute, um, right? Where people could keep keep their gold, keep their deposits, all that stuff, right? And the the whole key to everything, right? It's it's not necessarily like the beginning, and it's not necessarily you know the end game. It's it's where we're at right now, and how it functions, right? Um, you know, it's kind of like this mystery that they got to solve, right? So the, you know, the, the, as anybody who reads this and gets into it, um, Jekyll Island uh, in Georgia, right? This is where the whole idea was conceived, uh, you know, kind of the birth of this as the banking cartel, as they call it, right? And it, the idea was to strategize the members of it and protect from direct competition. And, you know, how were they going to convince Congress and how were they going to convince the general public that this organization was an agency of the United States government? Because it's not. It's independent, right? And... Let's dive into that a little bit. So you had the right the most influential people in the world, right? Um m- most probably most importantly to, to maybe not most importantly, but very, very important, Nelson Aldrich, Senator from Rhode Island. And in 1910. He was one of the most powerful men in Washington, D.C. He, you know, his private railway car, right, was seen around rail terminals, you know, New Jersey, New York area, Rhode Island, frequent trips to Wall Street. Uh, And he was far more than just a U.S. senator. He was like the political spokesman for big business. Uh, he was an investment associate of the one and only J.P. Morgan, so he had you know just all kinds of holdings in public utilities, manufacturing, banking. His son-in-law was John Rockefeller Jr., and um, in 19 was it 70, I think. Uh, his grandson Nelson. Aldrich Rockefeller would be vice president of the United States. And he had a direct impact on this. He provided transportation in secret for guys to get to Jekyll Island. Um, You had all kinds of, you know political influence here, right? So, but what was the idea, right? The idea was concentration of wealth, centralization of control over financial resources, right? That was the idea. And obviously, like way before 1910, you had this going on. Um, But in the United States, right, we had two, you had two points of control. You had the Morgan Group and you had the Rockefeller Group. Right, um, you know you had investment firms, you had commercial banks, you had acceptance banks, right, and over in Europe, you had the same thing, right you had the Rothschilds and the Warburgs, and you know one one sixth of the total wealth of the world was represented by the Jekyll group members, Jekyll Lion Club, and you also then had, you know, you had European financiers and the Rockefeller Group, in addition to the Morgan Group that they were talking about, right? And you had about one quarter of the world's wealth in this handful of, of entities. So when in 1913, the year that the Federal Reserve Act became law, uh, there was a subcommittee of the House Committee on Currency and Banking. And the chairman at the time was Arsene Puo of Louisiana. And they the subcommittee was doing an investigation in the concentration of financial power in the United States. And Puo was a spokesman for oil interests, part of the <laughs> very entities who were under investigation. And Puo did everything he could to sabotage the hearings. But... In spite of those efforts, there was a very damning report that came out. And let me read a little bit from this here. Okay. Let's go with me for a minute here. So, under our system of issuing and distributing corporate securities, investing public does not buy directly from the corporation. Securities travel from the issuing house through middlemen to the investor. It's only the great banks or bankers with access to the mainsprings of the concentrated resources made up of other people's money and the banks, trust companies and life insurance companies. And with control of the machinery for creating markets, distributing securities who've had the power to underwrite or guarantee the sale of large scale security issues. The men who through their control over the funds of our railroad and industrial companies are able to direct where such funds shall be kept and thus to create these great reservoirs of the people's money are the ones who are in a position to tap those reservoirs for the ventures in which they are interested and to prevent their being tapped for purposes which they do not approve. When we consider also in this connection that into these reservoirs of money and credit there flow a large part of the reservoirs of the banks of the country, they are also the agents and correspondents of the out-of-town banks in the loaning of their surplus funds in the only public money market of the country, and that a small group of men and their partners and associates have now further strengthened their hold upon the resources of these institutions by acquiring large stock holdings therein by representation on their boards, Through valuable patronage, we begin to realize something in the extent to which this practical and effective domination control over our greatest financial, railroad, and industrial corporations has developed, largely within the past five years, and that it is fraught with peril to the welfare of the country. So, you can see what the idea was here. And it be, it was in plain sight. They did this right in front of our eyes. So, you know, it's one of the things that we think about here, right, of the purpose of the meeting on Jekyll Island was not <laughs> not hunting ducks, as they called it, It was to come to an agreement on the operational methods, uh, the structure of, uh, of an official banking cartel. And the goal of the cartel, which is true like of any cartel, drugs or otherwise, you want to maximize profits and you want to minimize competition between members thus making it difficult for new competitors to enter the field. And you can then utilize the policing power of government to enforce the cartel agreement, right? The purpose and actual outcome of the meeting was to create a design, right, layout, blueprint, whatever you want to call it, for the Federal Reserve system, okay? Okay. And this has been confirmed over time, right? Many times, and essentially, this was like just this was like a a party of the nation's greatest bankers coming together, and you know, sneaking into uh, you know the private piece of real estate to you know have this (laughs) expedition of control of finance. Um, you know, it's one of those things, right? Scary, 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 how, you know, the power can be, you know, put to, uh, you know, put to use in this instance here, right? So, um, you know, the, the structure then being with this, right? So you've got all these independent businesses Right. They join together. And they're going to coordinate their efforts for production, pricing, you know, market, all that stuff. Right. They want to reduce competition. Right. It's accomplished through only one thing, shared monopoly over the industry. Right. And you force the public then to pay higher prices for goods or services, which in a free enterprise world would be a lot lower for People think about what's happening right now with inflation and other things, right? And inflation is cyclical based on, you know, spending. But so you had Morgan, Rockefeller, Rothschild, Warburg, Kuhn-Lebb. They were often in competition with each other and probably didn't trust each other all that well. Uh, They were skillful. And what they were doing, right, to try to have a position of power. But they were willing to come together to fight the common enemy, which was competition, okay? So let's dive into here for a few minutes. Let's kind of talk about, like, the the whole history of with banking at the time and, and everything. So in 1910 banking like if not banking as you know it but like think of like local non-national banks right this could just be you know the the town of what you know whatever you want to call it you know like so say like you know use uh i don't know cleveland ohio as an example right so at at the time right you know cleveland might have had just its own bank, right? Not a national bank. So the number of banks in the United States was growing. Like, it was exploding. Um, you had over 20,000, um, you know, banks in, in in the country. And, you know, most of these banks then, with the, with the populace moving out to the west of the country, the south, the southwest, right? New York banks start to have a decline of market share, right? So about 30 years prior in the early 1880s, right, most banks, the vast majority, were national banks, right? So they were chartered by the federal government and generally located in big cities, i.e. New York City. And they could, they were allowed by law to issue their own currency, which would be bank notes, right? And... Not too long after, so just a little bit before 1900, right? the number of non-national banks had grown to 61% and held 54% of the country's total banking deposits. By 1913, when the Federal Reserve Act was passed, you had... Non-national banks holding 57% of recorded deposits. In the eyes of the banking cartel, (laughs) the Jekyll Island folks, uh, that's a bad trend, right? If you're Morgan and others, right, you're looking at this and you're like, "This, uh, this could be catastrophic for us if it keeps going that way, right? So competition, then, right? You also had this growth, right? As we looking through the Industrial Revolution and all these things, right? The expansion of industry, et cetera. Um, you also were there was this level of competition against Morgan and others that uh, you know people weren't they weren't borrowing capital as much. They were financing via profits and. You know, this was a function of you had free markets, interest rates, which were, you know, they were good, right? So you had this balance between debt and they call it thrift, right? Rates were low enough, right? You could attract, you know, really legitimate buyers who were confident of their business ventures, right? And confident of the ability to repay. But you had them high enough that you would discourage frivolous stuff, right? Or maybe some... Uh, you know somebody's got this new business venture that's really risky, or or whatever it was. So the balance between debt and thrift, right? It was the result of a limited money supply. Right, a bank could create a loan in excess of of their actual deposits, right? So we talk about getting into fractional reserve banking, but there was a limit to that right and the limit was determined by the amount of precious metal i.e. gold that they held so between 1900 and 1910 70% of the funding that you had for american corporate growth right it was generated internally Making it increasingly, like more and more, independent of actual banks, and you had even, even the Fed, federal government, was becoming "quote unquote" thrifty, had a growing stockpile of gold, right, and it was buying back or getting back uh, the the greenbacks which were issued during Civil War, and reducing. The national debt. And the bankers had also one more thing that they wanted to put a stop to. Um, these bankers wanted to intervene and they wanted to bend the balance of interest rates down to favor. People taking on debt. And the only way to do this was the money supply had to be disconnected from gold and the gold standard to be able to be made more plentiful or, as it gets described, elastic, which is, if think about this. So you got rubber band or you've got anything elastic right you could kind of use like if you watch them make um like hard candy and stuff you've got right so the 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 you know the, the composition of hard candy when it comes out it's really hot and it's very stretchy 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 and you can get so much out of it uh, the idea here was creating right this federal reserve bank which is fiat currency they don't have to have gold Or anything like that, right? So they can leverage infinite amount of currency. And the other thing that they needed to eliminate, and this will be the last thing we get into here, uh, the, the biggest threat, it wasn't from rival banks, it wasn't from private capital, it was from the general public and their ability to withdraw funds or what we would know as a quote-unquote run on the bank, right? So when a bank accepts a customer's deposit, right, and they return and give you, you know, what your balance is, right? So the The balance then is is a promise to pay back the deposit anytime you would want, right? You could put a thousand dollars in the bank, come back the next day. And your assumption, right? Your interpretation is that you can go get that thousand dollars if you need it the next day. So you can look at it as well. right When another customer borrows money from the bank, that person is also given an account balance, which usually is withdrawn immediately to satisfy the purpose of the loan. This creates a massive problem. You think of it like a, um, it's kind of like an explosion waiting to happen, right? You think of it like ticking down, right? At that point, The bank has issued more promises to, quote, pay on demand than it has money in the vault. (laughs) Even though the person who deposited thinks, like you and I think, that you can get your money anytime you want, the reality is that money has been given to the borrowing customer and is no longer available at the bank. think about that, right? If you put a million dollars in the bank, the bank's going to take that million and they're going to leverage it into 9 million in loans. Now, granted, or credit cards or whatever it is, right? Because, you know, they're getting X amount of interest on the stuff that they issue out. But because the bank knows that, they can play hardball and prevent you from, you know. Remember, they've only got so much cash, fiat currency, in the vault, in the bank, or in the cash drawers there, right? So if you try to get money out, some things are going to happen. Number one, they're going to say we can't do it, or they're going to give you a hard time about it, or right at a certain threshold, right? If you want to go get a hundred bucks, right, no big deal. But if you walked in there, if you if you had a checking account. And you went online, right? And you looked at all my balance says a million dollars. If you went to your local bank branch and you went in there and you wanted to withdraw a million dollars, they're not going to do it. They're going to give you a hard time. They're going to question you about it. They're going to do all this stuff because it doesn't actually exist. It's not actually there. We'll get into more of that. So because banks can loan out and leverage significantly more than what they have, we've got this like nightmare situation. So, you know, banks can loan even more money than they've received in deposit, right? It's, you know, it's this is modern day banking, right? Promises to pay exceed savings deposits, usually by a factor of 10 or 15 to 1. And... Because of this, right? You've only got about three to five percent of the accounts, right, which are actually in the vault in the form of cash. You know, it's the rest of it is all. Tur- you know, you can kind of think of it like right. So if you put a thousand dollars in there, they're they're going to keep about thirty bucks, and they're going to take the other nine hundred and seventy, and they're going to wrap that into some financing and dish it out to someone else because the bank knows you're not going to go pull that thousand dollars out or, you know, whatever factor you want to use this. Right. So as long as only a small percentage of depositors request their money at one time, no one's the wiser. But if public gets nervous, if confidence is, you know, not in a good place, if more than a few percent of people try to take their funds, right, everything's exposed. The bank can't keep all its promises; it's forced to close its doors, and bankruptcy follows. And we saw this. Well, we didn't see it. I mean, it kind of you can watch like documentaries and stuff. But if you look at the financial crisis from 08, We saw this, right? Federal government, quote-unquote, had to step in, right? Because X, Y, and Z, right? Making bad loans, right? Bad mortgages, all this stuff to people who potentially couldn't pay, right? They over-leveraged themselves, and it caused just a mess, 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 okay? And the you know the same result could happen even without like the, the the like the run on the bank right so instead of withdrawing their funds at the bank what if they simply wrote checks to purchase stuff okay so you write a check right so the perp- the person who got the check right they'll take it to a bank for a deposit if the bank happened to be the same one from which the check was drawn, then everything was good, right? Because it was not necessarily to move any real money from the bank vault. It's just on a ledger. But, what if they take it to another bank? It was quickly passed back to the issuing bank, and settlement was demanded between banks, right? But... You know, if Bank A is demanding payment from Bank B, Bank B is also clearing checks and demanding payment from Bank A. So as long as the money flow in both directions is equal, right, everything can be handled with just bookkeeping. It's just numbers on a spreadsheet. But if it's not equal one of the banks actually has to send physical money to the other to make up the difference. If the amount of money required exceeds that very few percentage points of total deposits, it's almost like the same as a run on a bank from individuals, right? And we get this currency drain thing. All right, so that's enough for today. Uh, We'll dive into, you know, maybe a little bit more history, how this is all working and everything, um, and, you know, kind of start moving forward. Again, I don't know how long this series is going to be, but my gosh, I, I hope this is entertaining. I hope this is informational. Like I said, you can do research. Everything that I'm talking about here is it's, it's available information. You can go find it. A lot of it is, you know, money mechanics. Again, I'm not a finance expert by any means. I'm just a guy that likes to read, likes to try to stay informed about how things work. And maybe this will be, you know, eye eye-opening and, and all that fun stuff. But anyway, thanks for listening and we will catch you again on the next episode of the John Q public podcast. Take care.